When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to Real Jam Radio. I'm Daniel, we're your host, and so happy to have you with us for this episode. My guest is Sirat Sohi, talented writer, and also she had a, an interesting recent piece on Clay Thompson. So we start out going through Clay and the piece, and then also Durant, Westbrook, and Harden, especially in light of Wednesday's game, Warriors Thunder game, and all of all of what ensued there. And then we go on to a lot of other discussion factors. For those of you who are interested, I will have timestamps on this episode so you can take a look when we get into various topics. It will not include everything we discuss, but it'll give you a pretty good idea. And this episode is brought to you by ZipRecruiter. You can go to ZipRecruiter.com slash sportsfan and list jobs for free. Audible. You can go to www.audible.com slash try now and you can check out with a free trial their amazing service, audiobooks and other audio programming. It's absolutely fantastic. I've used it for a while. And my old friend Blue Apron. Blueapron.com slash real GM and you can get three meals for free, including free shipping on your first order. Fantastic food delivery service and a longtime friend of the podcast. So episode with Sirat runs about an hour and a half. I really did enjoy it and I think you'll enjoy it as well. Thanks so much for coming on. Thanks for having me. We should probably start with Clay Thompson, considering you just wrote a piece about him for Sports on Earth. And he is a fascinating figure with this Warriors team because he occupies a fundamentally different niche than just about everybody else on this diverse team. Yeah, he's really like the yin to their yang, I think. Well, I would actually say that that was more accurate to last year. I think well, him and Durant are very similar at least in their ability, Durant definitely isolates more. But like, let's say, I think Clay is kind of like a good template for what Durant might be doing if later in the season when he gets more acclimated to the system and if he if he completely buys into not going isolation all the time. Clay's just got such a quick trigger, which is so g- great for for this Warriors team because it kind of like lets everybody else handle a ball and feel like they're involved. Yeah, he he occupies a different space, which is exactly what they need. I think about this with Draymond also because they're both low. Well, low usage isn't really right with Clay because he does have a relatively high usage, but it's low possession, high high effectiveness, and you need players like that on your team, especially when you have individuals like Curry and Durant who are talented at creating for other people, either through their own passes or just defensive attention. Right. Like what I wrote in the piece was that he's one of the higher usage players on the Warriors, but out of the core four, he's the lowest in in time of possession and in touches because, you know, he he gets a ball. He takes he's really, really efficient with his dribbles. He he sees a drive. He goes and takes it really quickly. He might, you know, pump fake one dribble, pull up, but he doesn't really, you know, needlessly handle the ball too much. So that's that's really helpful because at at the end of the day, we can look at usage stats But the players aren't like, I mean, for the most part, most players aren't really looking at those advanced stats. So if they're touching the ball a lot, they feel like they're involved and Clay can have a high usage because he's just strictly ending possessions and he'll feel good, too, because he's scoring the ball. That's what he does. 
on on offense. That's what he does, and yeah. and he he occupies that that specific area for this team because everybody else has this penchant for overpassing. It's it's toning down a little bit as we get closer closer to the end of the season and these players are a little bit more acclimated. They don't feel like they have to do everything. It's not like when you're the new kid in the school and you want to be nice to everybody. Like they're they're kind of figuring out what their spots are. But it's intriguing because Thompson just is what he is and the the holdover guys knew exactly what that was, was that when he's open, he's gonna take the shot. When he's not open, he's probably gonna take the shot. <laughs> right. Right. I think he also occupies, like, an interesting dynamic in the Warriors and that, like, he kind of doesn't really care about, like, the kumbaya part of it. Like, I think a lot of the other players buy in or at least, like, project that they're buying in. But Clay's kind of the guy who's like, I'm not sacrificing shit. He's not really, like, going out all in the media like I think like if there's any conception of him in in like the mind of fans it's like this he's kind of just like this jock who puts up shots and like it's like oh great I'm in this great system and like it's revolutionary and it represents a bunch of, bunch of Silicon Valley stuff like cool that's fine but like I'm not gonna I'm not gonna play into it he also helps set the tone in terms of dealing with everything that comes with being this team because while Draymond is certainly this as well, Clay is so comfortable in his own skin and always has been that he helped kind of establish that foundation for guys on this team doing what they want, being candid, being honest. It's just that his being candid, being direct is very, very, very different from a guy like Draymond or what Durant is becoming. Right. Like, I think a lot of the players on the team kind of get bogged down in complexity almost and Clay is kind of and Draymond to a, to an extent as well they're kind of just like no like let's let's keep it simple here and it's kind of like the same thing on the court too like with the overpassing with everybody else which we saw a little bit of last night too as much as it is uh as it is starting to stop but you know like Clay is just the guy who's like oh like this is a good shot like let's keep it simple just take it he has toned it down a little bit during the Kerr era from Mark Jackson just because the idea right. of expectations, but really what that turned into was just him understanding and understanding those looks and taking out the 10 the 10% that was probably his worst attempts and that has made him so much better because he has height, he has a height advantage and as you said he has a really quick release and now with the amount of offensive talent they have on the floor, there are times where even though you don't want him to ever be open, you kind of have to allow that to happen because the other options are even worse. Right, right. Although there, there are times too. So one of my fa- one of my favorite uh, developing wrinkles with the Warriors now is uh, in transition. I think teams are still so scared of Clay and Curry that they'll leave Durant open for a dunk. Like I've seen that happen a lot more and it's kind of like so representative of what the Warriors are like of like where the league is going that guys like subconsciously are so much more scared of a three pointer that one of the best scorers like in a generation is open for a dunk and you know, you're not even paying attention to that. Yeah, arguably the even more striking one of that is that there have been probably around 10 times this year where Draymond Green has gone coast to coast on a rebound and dunked it and no one ever really stopped him because <laughs> right. they were so freaked out about everyone else and Draymond is is quick with the ball in his hands but he's not you know he's not a water bug just like out there you can't react to it it's just that teams are making a conscious choice that it's worse and also sometimes it's that one guy makes a bad decision like two two people do it right and then the third guy fails to execute Right, and I, th- I think a lot of that failure in execution is just, like, perception, too. It, it used to be that, 
you know, you wouldn't guard Curry a certain way. You'd be like, oh, I don't have to go that far up on him. And I think the league has adjusted to that to the point where, like, the rest of the team is just getting open on layups. Yeah. The irony of it is that Clay still never finds Steph in transition. It's a running joke for, for us Warriors writers because it's been true since Clay was a rookie that he just, he, he's good at many things. He's not great at passing in transition. And so he just, he, he's found him, I think, if I had to ballpark it, I'd say around five times in the last four years in transition. <laughs> it's great. It's absolutely great. I, I wanted to ask you about, because you're coming at this from a different perspective. We're recording this on Thursday morning after Warriors Thunder. You watch the game. What did you think about the whole Pachulia Westbrook dust up and how that affects, you know, the dynamic between and with these two teams moving forward? I think it just like adds the animosity. Well, at least from Westbrook's side, it's kind of weird to weird to see how Durant and Westbrook interact with each other. Obviously, you know, they had that little conversation that we'll probably be talking about for the next few days on the court, even though nobody's going to know what uh, what they talked about. But, you know, like, Westbrook is so anti-Warriors, anti-Durant. Like, he says they're not on speaking terms. They, you know, he's always, like, he had the uh, the photography thing, the photography outfit that, that he wore that we wore last year, and I think Durant just doesn't really care. Like he's kind of just like, oh yeah, you know that guy's always gonna be always gonna be in my life. Like you know, like it's it's kind of weird because like I think at any other time like people would kind of be siding with Durant, but we're so we're so into petty right now that like there's a lot of people that are just like like loving loving what Westbrook is doing. Anyway, I think it just it just adds to it because like at the end of the day, Zaza. I think last night said something along the lines of, yeah, you know, if you start, you keep playing, it happens, whatever. And Westbrook's like, I'm getting it back for that. My analogy for the Westbrook Durant thing at this point is it's it's when a relationship broke up and whether you could talk about whether it was justified or not. That's a whole other conversation. But the weirdness that transpires when one party moves on relatively quickly and the other one doesn't. I feel like Durant has basically just closed the book on that part of his life. You know, he has his memories. He has his experiences. You know, he was, you know, he's like, he talked after the game about how he's like, yeah, hey, I get to, got to see those guys again and all the kind of stuff. And then when you listen to Westbrook, when you see Westbrook, he sees it totally differently. And it's not that either one of those is wrong or either one of them is right. It's just two different ways of dealing with the same circumstance that also is a lot easier to understand when you know that one person made the choice and one person was just affected by it. Yeah, yeah. Westbrook definitely has a lot more justification for being salty about what happened. But at the same time, though, he's like he loves playing into it, too. I mean, I don't know how upset he is versus how much he's performing being upset because he knows it plays into this image of Russell Westbrook. Right. That's true. So, he does agree very well. Mm-hmm. He really does. I mean, he's it's kind of it's kind of turned him into a martyr. Yeah, and it's also fed into this season for him where the dynamic was going into the year was Russ going it alone, even though they have some good players, but you know, Russ going it alone and everything that we've seen has really fed that dynamic and he has done nothing, not that he should, he has done nothing to dissuade people from that other than giving credit to his teammates, which of course he, he should and is proper to do. Right, yeah, I mean, he, he really, he, he's completely playing into it. There's not, there's no one part of him that's even trying to, to like, oh, like this part isn't true or anything like that. Like if, if you... If you peg anything individualistic on him, like he's just going to double down on it at this point. I think I, I have trouble reconciling some of the some of the elements of of his triple double because like his if he averages it for a year, it's 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 insanely impressive. There is 
nothing that can be done to discount it. And the difference in pace between now and when Oscar did it is, is another significant factor that goes in Russ's favor. But at the same point, it's convoluted because they need him to do all of that, but it's also really the only way this team works. So it is individual excellence, but it's in such a it's in such a specific way that, I, I, at least personally, I don't feel like I appreciate it all the time for what it is. I mean, do they need him to do it all the time? From a ball handling perspective, they probably do. Maybe not everything in terms of... There isn't really anybody else in this team who can create much for others. I mean, I think I would say Oladipo is developing as some something of a secondary creator for them. I it just there's a lot of young guys on this team, and if you don't really if you dominate the ball as much as Westbrook does, I don't think anybody even if they have that potential gets a chance to show that they can do it. It also I mean, yeah, I, that's a good point. It also is an issue where the coaching staff isn't doing the rest of the team any favors because you can generate looks through the system. There are teams that have done that for years that, you know, maybe through ball movement and player movement, and Donovan is certainly better at that than Scotty Brooks was, but still not great in all of those elements. Right, and I think, like, he, uh, Westbrook almost kind of forced their hand with that, too, just because of how adamant he was about his loyalty to OKC and just staying and like, you know, this is my team. I'm going to carry them. It was just like, you know, he, he kind of, he kind of forced that to happen a little bit. Like it's even, even going back to last year too, it's not like those guys were particularly buying into any new offensive philosophies that they, that they weren't under, under Brooks. So he kind of set it up for himself that way. I was just thinking about the idea that these three famous all-star MVP caliber players that were former teammates now are in systems that are all really reflective of not only what they are as players, but what they want to be in terms of players in a system. Harden has a team built around him, but it's still ball movement, you know, exciting, periodically infuriating. Russ is the alpha and the omega on a team that is scrappy and outperform, you know, maybe arguably outperforming their talent level. And Durant is a successful piece in the best team in the league. Yeah, yeah, I think yeah, you're definitely onto something. Especially, I mean, I think I think a lot of people would would say that about Westbrook and Harden, but I never really thought about Durant that way. But it's certainly true if you just take his skills into into isolation. Of course, he has a lot of. I mean, isolation the other way. He has a lot of ISO habits that aren't particularly Warriors-esque, but he's also, you know, this really dynamic guy who can switch onto on defense, and he's a really good shooter. He can shoot from pretty much anywhere on the floor and come off screens. Like, he's he really does, in some ways, represent the Warriors in a way that I didn't really think about until you, until you brought it up right now. For reasons that are unsurprising and logical, I was asked and talked a lot about the prospect of Durant on the Warriors before it happened. And the point that I always fell back on was that Durant, and I knew this from covering him for years and watching interviews and everything like that, is that he had a very good understanding of the league in general, but specifically the Warriors and what they did. And my my logic to it, because people are like, oh, how's it going to fit? Is that I said, if he comes to Oakland, he will be doing so with the knowledge of what is expected of him. 
and that it is indicative of some larger preferences within him and it's taking some time i i wonder if the warriors kind of gave him the stretch where he was anchoring the second unit to placate him in that way and then he might be they might be realizing oh he doesn't even really need that he works within this team system and thrives in a different way and now they've made this switch after the cleveland game but really after sacramento to having draymond green run that and get even more of durant and curry together Oh yeah, I think it might it might even go back to the Memphis game too. That's when when Draymond shoot him out and like you know he he tried to isolate on I think it was Zach Randolph. So he still has to he still has to beat those habits out of himself a little bit. Just as much as I mean I don't like that's that's really the question, isn't it? It's just how much uh, Durant is really that guy and how much he wants to be that guy and how much of like you know some of the some of his more selfish habits are born out of him playing in OKC versus you know just who he is as a player but I think like yeah I think it's coming along it's obviously going to be a long process but you know you're you're really starting to see it I think you saw it a lot in the the Cavs game um not not so much yesterday just because well a nobody else was really going off and then him and him and Westbrook kind of kind of got into it and that's one of those moments where hey you you kind of want to let him kind of take over like that that's true also his shots were really within the flow of the offense. Like Durant hasn't, the only game that I can think of where he really just said, I'm taking the reins from a shooting perspective was there was a game against Portland in, I want to say it was mid December where he just basically went, there's no one on this team that can guard me. I'm going to, I'm going to take over for four to five minutes with the other starters on the floor. And I think he scored like 10 or 12 points in those four or five minutes. Other than that, it's broadly just being brutally efficient at the opportunities that he creates for himself and that are created for him through this offense and system. Yeah, I'd, I'd agree with that. But that's kind of like that. That's kind of what the thing with the Warriors is, though, is that most of the shots that any of the the core four will take will be in the flow of the offense. But the reason they're great is because they kind of will pass up on the shot that's in the flow of the offense. Right, and. Draymond Green has been figuring that out as well. Green is not nearly the scorer that the other players are. And so figuring out when he wants to shoot and when he wants to use the threat of shooting to get a guy to come out on him and then turn it into something else. Right. Not that there's much of a threat of shooting this year anyway, but... Uh, he, st- he still does it. I mean, he's not the greatest <laughs> at it, but it's a weird... Like, the idea of this, uh, Kevin Pelton's written about it before, numerous other intelligent people have, that... The idea of somebody shooting sometimes is more potent than what they actually do with it and how well they how well they succeed because willingness to shoot is a positive in and of itself unless you reach those ungodly levels like Marcus Smart shooting threes last year. Right, right. And I think like to take it back to Westbrook, that's kind of the thing with the Thunder this year too. I mean, we came in thinking it's going to be Westbrook and a bunch of guys that can't shoot. All of was having a good three-point shooting year. I think Sabonis, who's you know just been positive all around, is shooting around 36, 37% for them. But and obviously Roberson's still not quite there. But he like the, all of them, you know, hypothetically can shoot. But the fact that guys aren't really running out on them still hinders the Thunder's offense a lot. Shooting is a lagging indicator. And it gets frustrating from time to time because you see mistakes that way. It can be advantageous to the offense if a player has an outdated reputation in a positive way or in a negative way and they're willing to shoot. But it can really hurt the Thunder because unless those guys make make an opponent pay consistently, they're they're just going to exploit it and create limited avenues. Because even if Jeremy Grant or Robertson start hitting their threes... 
you probably still want guys to help on Westbrook drives because that's the best thing that the Thunder can do. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think the best example of this was actually like Nikola Mirotic for two straight years was considered a really, really good shooter. Guys running out on him, he's facing the floor. Where in reality, he was just, he's a really streaky shooter and he was just letting them fly like at not a very, very good rate at all. Yeah, that's a really good point. And my God, the Bulls, we could, I could talk about the Bulls forever, but... <laughs> But first, I want to talk a little bit about ZipRecruiter. We're st- still in January, which means it's time to get a fresh start for your business. And a key part of any successful business is making successful hiring. And at this point, posting your job in one place is not enough to find the right candidates and filter through the best candidates. You want to be on all of the best job sites. And you can do that with ZipRecruiter. ZipRecruiter posts your job to 200 plus job sites, including social media networks like Facebook and Twitter, all with a single click. You can find candidates in any city or industry nationwide. You post it once and just let the qualified candidates roll in. I find this fun because I actually have used ZipRecruiter as an applicant before, so I can speak to it from that end. And I think it's cool to do it from the employer side. And ZipRecruiter is making a pretty amazing offer here because you can post jobs to ZipRecruiter for free if you go to ZipRecruiter.com slash sportsfan, S-P-O-R-T-S-F-A-N. And then you can post it for free. You get to, they send all the candidates to you. You can quickly screen them, rate them, and hire the right person fast. ZipRecruiter has been used by more than 1 million businesses. You can check it out for yourself. Again, the URL is ziprecruiter.com slash sportsfan. You can try it for free. You can post jobs for free. And hopefully you are incredibly impressed with the, the product that they provide. Now back to the conversation. Going back to Oklahoma City, I'm intrigued by the idea of how much of this dynamic that they have that is so well worn and well established, and they're settling into a spot. Kind of, and we'll see. I mean, they they miss Adam a lot, Adams a lot defensively for these couple games, but he'll be back after this concussion. And the idea of how much of this is necessary and how much of this is prescribed, and I'm legitimately unsure. Yeah, I'm kind of fifty fifty on it. Like like I said earlier, I do think there are players on on the Thunder who would have the potential to go and do things if they were given the shot. Maybe if you were to compare it to Houston too, like that's that would be a good way to look at it because I think going into the season, the notion of both teams was that Harden and Westbrook would kind of have to just take the mantle and wouldn't have a lot to work with. But despite how similar their stats are, James Harden is a lot more privy to letting the ball go and letting other guys create and as a result you've got these players that you didn't necessarily think were players who are who are doing really really great things for the for the Rockets and you know it's kind of like as far as the MVP debate goes at least it's kind of bitten him in the in the back a little bit because now it's like oh yeah James Harden has great teammates and look Russell Westbrook's just carrying this team it's a good point And one of the greatest things about Mike D'Antoni's system is that it empowers and engages the players that are willing to embrace it. And that has been basically this entire Rockets team, whether whether it's the starters, like Pat Beverly has done a nice job with the ball in his hands a little bit less because everything's running through Harden. Ariza's having a great year. Clint Capella, when he's healthy, has been fantastic. And then the second unit, Montrezl Harrell, Sam Decker, like those guys have been great this season, and it is allowing the Rockets to play, incidentally, tying along with your point, one of the big disparities between Westbrook and Harden right now 
is that the Rockets have been a lot better with Harden on the bench than the Thunder have been with Westbrook on the bench. Some of that is personnel, but some of it is also system. Right. I mean, that's not even getting into Eric Gordon, who is like, it's probably the closest award of the year, but he's my sixth man of the year for sure. Certainly in the conversation between him and Lou, and, and I have trouble with this because Eric Gordon is absolutely a better player than Lou Williams, but Lou Williams early in the year was having a better year. I, I need to look at the look at the numbers again. I mean, Nate and I'll do will do an awards pod at the end of January at some point. But Gordon, whether he whether he has that or not, has been absolutely spectacular this year, fitting exactly the role that they wanted, even though it's not where he started the year due to Beverly's injury. Right. And even looking at somebody like like Sam Decker, and a lot of this does like I'm glad you mentioned D'Antoni because a lot of this does go to his system as well, but I'm not sure somebody like Decker would have stuck out the way that he has in Houston, in in Oklahoma. He wouldn't. It wouldn't work in the same way, and the fact that their offense looks as good as it does when Harden is not on the floor, I mean, he makes a huge difference, but that they're they're still up there is a testament to Gordon, but also a testament to D'Antoni. Yeah. It helps, though, that they have two starting caliber players in Beverly and Gordon that are often playing together when Harden's sitting, but Houston is implementing something that I've wanted to see for years, often actually for me, more power forward and center. The Hawks did it at the beginning of the year, which is if you have three good guards, just play them in a rotation where you just have two of them on the floor at any one time. Teams sometimes go to hockey subs a little bit too frequently, and D'Antoni has realized we have three good guys. We only ever really want to play two of them at once, so we can make this work. Right, and that's a re- that's a big reason there's such a huge disparity between Westbrook's uh, on-off rating and Harden's on-off rating as well. Samaje Christian was not exactly the same caliber <laughs> as those guys. Well, at least Cameron Payne's back, so yeah, there's he, that. <laughs> he is, and the Thunder will look, I think they'll look better with Payne out there just because he's so much more competent than what they had before, and Oladipo as talented as he is, never really stepped into that role of being the kind of being an initiator on that second unit, paralleling Bradley Beal, actually two guys who were drafted in the same class that one of their, one of the pieces of their appeal was that idea that maybe they could initiate second unit offense. Both of them probably aren't, that's not what they're going to do, but they've improved enough in the other elements of offense and overall team basketball to be around the same value level that many expected when they were drafted yeah i think both those guys are just too much of uh, at least uh they think of themselves as, as too much of natural scores and there's definitely a little bit of tunnel vision they're not really they're not really combo guard types they don't really have that skill set but they have they're still they're still a great great asset to their teams in a lot of other ways though absolutely and <laughs> both play with individuals happen to have fortunately gotten to play with individuals that shoulder the burden that they were quote-unquote supposed to be able to handle so they're not really missing much and I think what that relates to also is that while there are a lot of other ways to to get an offense going running pick and rolls at the NBA level with NBA defenders is incredibly complicated and there are a lot of players that just can't shoulder that burden yeah that's certainly true I think we Beal's actually like a prime example of that because of how many years uh Going back to Randy Whitman. Yeah, Whitman. There we go. <laughs> his uh, his era in Washington. They used to try to get him set up in pick and rolls all the time. Like they dedicated so much of their offense just to developing that in him. It never really got anywhere past a drive or a pull up jumper. That can be enough 
when you have the right player, but passing is so important out of that, especially if you can generate a little bit of extra attention. The idea of creating a pick and roll that requires more than two people to defend is still a centerpiece of a successful offense. Right, and the beauty behind having the secondary ball handler running a pick and roll is to is to help ease off the predictability of, of most NBA offenses, and that's just not really something that somebody like Beal provides. It's a great point. Also, the wall Gortat pick and rolls are just so awesome that you can work off of that. And right. Gortat and Wall have this great chemistry that comes not only with experience, but also off of a guy setting really good screens, which creates the space for Wall that he can use to do something. It's not always to shoot a jump shot. Sometimes it actually, the screen creates pass a space for a pass for Gortat. Sometimes it creates the need for help. And they're making it work despite not... I mean, Gortat has a little bit of a jumper, but not having that pick and pop throw. I mean, there's a lot of obsession, justifiably so. I'm not criticizing it in any way, about the value of a pick and pop big. But having a guy who sets really good screens and rolls hard to the basket is still a great way to generate points. Right. He's also got the benefit of, I think, pretty much any big that played with Steve Nash, which is the ability to just be able to find space and like be savvy down low that way. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, yeah, he really... It, it downplays the need for having a, a good jumper when you're able to like just trick the guy that you're defending into thinking that he's with you and just like slide behind him or like go a little bit above. And he's got like he, once you get him a little bit down though, if he's within five feet, he's savvy enough that he's going to make the right play. Right. It does ask a lot of the passer, depending on how much space is created, because sometimes they have to get it through narrow windows. But you can use that. There are a lot of good passers in the NBA. So you, you can monopolize on you or you can capitalize on that. And I was thinking about it with Gortat because Russell Westbrook's former teammate, Serge Ibaka, is basically not pick is not rolling to the rim anymore. He's almost exclusively pick and popping. And while he's good at that, it's it's a real nice benefit of how he is, how Ibaka has grown his game. I like the idea, when it's possible, of a player who can do both because it just keeps the defense off balance. Right, right. It's kind of depressing to see to see what has become of Ibaka in a lot of ways. As much as you know, he has grown his game out. It's just kind of like I wonder how much he's popping just because he's developed that part of, part of his game, and the other end could just be you know massive decline as well. It's really really hard to say, especially on on that Magic team where you know it's just hard to get a grasp on anything. I have a a series of different thoughts on Ibaka, all of which are depressing. But so he like last year throughout the regular regular season, it looked like he had lost a step and that, you know, we were sitting there going, Oh, he's gonna be a free agent in a little over a year. He doesn't look he doesn't look like he's he's probably on the physical decline. And then in the playoffs in both the Spurs series and then I would say especially in the Warrior series, because that's when they were able to play him at center. He didn't look like his old self, but he looked like a middle ground between what he was in that season and prior. And so you're sitting there going, oh man, if he can be that for X amount of time, that's great. You know, he can do that. And ideally you can do that playing center, stretch out the floor. And then not only has he not shown that in Orlando, but even the lower end of the defensive impact that he was having in OKC is largely gone as well. Yeah, and you do wonder how much of that is like a result of being on a team that doesn't have much of a playoff shot too. But you know, at this point, it just seems like 
he he really isn't the player he used to be. That could be an, another matter of speculation. It could be injuries. That could be because he's a lot older than we think he is. Not quite sure in that sense. But, you know, he just like, there, there are nights where he just gets completely lit up in one-on-one matches too. So it's just, you know, he's lost pretty much every every aspect of his of his uh, defensive ability. I wonder not what his value is going to be because teams will pay for his skill set even if it's even if it's largely you know theoretical. Like, yeah, his theoretical <laughs> skill set is just so valuable, but I don't know if he has that place that rock solid place as being an important player on a on a gr- good to great team, which is what I always enjoyed him most doing. Like he obviously he he in his prime he could he was more than more than that, but he fits so well as a cog in the machine because he was versatile defensively, often offensively kind of balanced the low usage, high efficiency mm-hmm. depending on the circumstance. And now if you think about if you were to give him a, a lined up starting spot on let's say the Raptors, but really whoever, I don't know that I'm super comfortable with that, especially considering what he's probably going to get paid this summer. Right, right. I mean, that's that's the thing. Like, I don't know if the Raptors are kind of one of the perfect teams for him to go to because they're in the phase of contention where it's kind of like, well, you're not really gonna gonna beat the Cavs unless something breaks your way. So maybe you do take a risk on on somebody like Ibaka. But at the same time, he's He's kind of in that place, I think, right now, where if he was to completely just fall off the map, that wouldn't shock me. But at the same time, if he was gonna like go to a contender and make a, not a full resurgence, that would really surprise me. But like be eighty percent of what he was, that wouldn't be completely shocking either. It's just he's just somebody that's really, really hard to put a finger on right now. Yeah, that does make him intriguing for a lot of the semi-contenders out there, though. Right. Yeah, I've I've thought about him not saying because of their personnel that he would be a great fit, but a team in the same situation as the, like the Wizards or the Bulls, where they're not they're not contenders in that way, but he would he would probably make them better, even if it's not a perfect fit. Right. Like maybe maybe the Wizards. I think the Bulls have taken their fair share of risks on guys that may or may not be good anymore, and you know it just hasn't paid off for them. So they might want they might just want to call it at this point. It feels like that's a part of the Bulls' DNA at this point. You know, <laughs> I, I mean, not not like it is for the Knicks. Holy crap! But the Bulls are. I, I had this weird this weird realization a couple days ago when they were having they were having success as they have for the last couple weeks with Jimmy Butler and four spacing, which is not entirely surprising. But my question was not, oh wow, like this is working. It was, will the people who are making decisions for this team take this knowledge and turn it in and, and use it this offseason to make a team around Jimmy Butler? Well, I think that's hypothetically what they tried to do last year. But, I mean, they just keep putting themselves in situations where it's stopgap after stopgap. And they really, really just need to take one season where it's the idea is one step back and two steps forward. Because as much as, like, I, I hate the, I, I really hate the Jimmy Butler trade ideas because he's the guy that you hope you get when you're rebuilding and you've got him you've got him locked down for a couple of years here so you got to just waste one year so you can make the last two years really good i think cuz like i don't know if you guys have talked about like the trade proposals for him but at the end of the day like if if it was me if i'm not getting back like three top 5 lottery picks i'm not even thinking about it i'm not quite that high but i agree with your premise your premise is that when you get a lottery pick 
your dream is to get somebody as good as Jimmy Butler. Jimmy Butler deserves to start in the All-Star game in a strong strong East starter conversation. Not as strong as the West, but still very strong. And there is no guarantee, even if you get the number one pick, I mean, the I mean, number one pick is pretty strong, but there's no, there's no guarantee that that guy is going to become Jimmy Butler. He's a very actualized version of an incredibly talented guy, even though he went late in the first round. And... Butler, not only is he under under a reasonable contract right now because he's one of those players who signed before things got completely out of hand, but the Bulls in particular have the advantage because they can sign him to, assuming he qualifies, to this designated veteran extension at some point where nobody else can make him that offer. You know, before he hits the open market, they can lock him up to a rate that not only is he eliminating the risk, but he's also creating more value than could ever be there any other way. Right, and when I said when I said three first round picks, the idea uh, or uh, top five lottery picks, the idea wasn't all those players would permeate into one, but you would hope that you know after enough trial and error with three picks, that one of those guys are like they would all combine to be worth what Jimmy Butler is worth right now. And like you said, with salary, like you gotta love that he's right now the second highest player on the team. And the chances are that they pretty much got him locked up. I mean, I, I don't know anybody who would leave that much money on the table at the end of the day, especially in a market like Chicago. I mean, I get the players don't really go there, but it is it is a huge, huge market. And unless, like, you know, a team like some, maybe maybe L.A. or something like hops in, I just don't see what's going to be more, more alluring to somebody like Jimmy Butler. So they've really, really just got to work off the premise that they've got him and they're keeping him and then just... Like I think it's time for a fire fire sale there honestly. I agree with like, you. It's the same basic logic that I talked a little bit on Dunked On this past week about what I would do for if I were running the Knicks and the idea is basically that both the Knicks and the Bulls have at very different points in their career incredibly talented players that reasonably speaking are going to be the best players on their franchises for years to come. You know, they're they're not the best players in the league but they're top 20 overall and they're going to be better for the next couple of years and maybe even than they are right now so both of those situations the teams didn't really take that into account in the bulls case that was more due to circumstance because you know way rondo became available they didn't have a point right. guard. way became mm-hmm. available and it's Dwayne wade the knicks just screwed it up they misidentified talent they they built maybe arguably more around carmelo anthony despite not appeasing carmelo anthony <laughs> And so the idea behind what I would be doing right now, starting today, if I were either running either of those teams, is see how much you can do to get a reset. And the Bulls have a much easier time of this than the Knicks do because they didn't make any bad long-term contracts. So right. they, can, mm-hmm. they can make all that work. Right. And like, so when you look at the guys that they should, they should get rid of, at least like the high-value guys, I think you're, you're pretty much strapped with Rondo. I don't think uh, anybody's... I mean, I don't know. Every I keep thinking nobody's gonna take take Rondo, but then a team ends up taking Rondo. Unfortunately, Sacramento's already already had him. Otherwise, he'd be a pretty perfect option for a team to that that you could un- unload him onto. But Taj Gibson, who wouldn't? Is there a contender, a semi contender in the league that wouldn't take a rental on him for a first round pick? I mean, Pal Corver got a first round pick. You might even be able to get like a first and a second or something for him. Or a first and a low end kind of like lottery ticket young guy, you know, like one of those players where there's a one in a one in ten chance they end up being good, but that one in ten chance is still a, a useful part way to use a roster spot, you know, like Jane Grant. Yeah, something of <laughs> something of that ilk. 
and Taj Gibson can certainly help. Also, a great example of a player who is very well-liked around the league, and well-liked players often get more in a trade than you'd expect, just by virtue of that. To people like Thibodeau, who I'm sure I'm sure Tibbs would have loved to have had him all year this year for for the Wolves. But yeah, and I think if maybe if if the Wolves were actually going for a playoff spot, that'd be a perfect destination for him. I think if if the Clippers were legally able to do this, I think you could probably get two first rounders for him out of them. <laughs> yeah, it's just a, a complicated circumstance in terms of where they want to send all these pieces but that's what being a gm is you listen to all these offers you see what the best option on the table is and also identifying who is the best and like worst case kind of scenario for your team so like robin lopez is a good basketball player but do they need him as a part of the next great bulls team i lean towards no so I don't think you have to trade him, but you listen. And if you find a good deal, then you take it. And whatever the assets are that you get back, you get that. Taj is a clear issue because he's probably not, you're probably not going to want to re-side him. So then you, you make the move now. And I think Wade, you kind of ask him what he wants to do and you work from there. If, you, if he's happy or down to be traded, then if you, can, if you think it's a net positive trade for you, then you do it. And then... Figuring out with with Miritich, if if you want to if you want to bring him back at the expected value, then you probably keep him. And if you are uncomfortable with that, maybe you consider moving him too. I'd probably I'd probably uh, part ways with Miritich. I don't think you'd want to pay him like a real NBA contract on a rookie salary. He's not 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 so bad, but he's like I don't know if he's a long term piece for any contender really. And that's if you're gonna if you're gonna tear down, I think that's really what you got to be thinking about. On the Bulls. Who would you say, other than Jimmy, obviously, who would you say you would be more likely than not to want to have long-term? It always depends on the offer but, but and, and what, theoretically, some of them will get in free agency. But who do you, who do you look at on the team and say, yeah, this is somebody, I, I, whatever, the fi- whatever happens with Fire Cell, these are the ones that we'd want to keep? Uh... <laughs> For me, Cristiano Felicio <laughs> like, is probably there. Yeah, that's, that's the only guy I was really thinking. I like... I mean, I like what Paul Zipser has shown. He's on like a dirt cheap contract, so I'd probably keep him, of course. And then I like McDermott too. Yeah, yeah. I was McDermott was a guy I was kind of thinking about, and, I, and again, he's he's locked up as well. So why don't you keep him either? And he's also like he's a guy that's improved every year. He's especially especially now. I love what he's doing in the post, and he's definitely he's definitely growing into into his games as a player. He's kind of there are nights where he's like Dougie Dougie buckets, like the guy that you watched play college basketball. So I think. You know, yeah, I definitely keep him around just because he's he's on a rookie deal and he's also really tight with Jimmy. They go work out every year together, so if you want to keep Jimmy happy, you might want to keep his best friend on the team on especially if you're trading his other other good friend, Taj Gibson. They're both Midwestern guys too. I'm sure that helps a little bit. But <laughs> before we continue with the podcast, I want to take a quick moment to tell you about our friends at Audible. I was going to ask you, just as somebody watching the league, what what teams have intrigued you the most? Like, who do you find yourself watching and thinking about this year? Uh, I guess if we're, if we're going to frame it as like the teams I like watching the most, uh, the Bucks obviously. Giannis is probably the best ticket in the league right now, especially especially for league pass games. The Warriors, of course, are they're pretty much can't miss. Yeah, those are those are like my big two. Uh, I really like. I really, really have enjoyed watching Houston. I think I I've made that made that pretty clear talking about Harden earlier. I've I fall pretty pretty strongly on the the Harden side of the the MVP debate between those guys. Other than that, um, 
kept an eye on the Timberwolves, just hoping they'd be better than they are. But I mean, and and regardless of whether they are, they're still like as as frustrating as they are. They're a young team. They're still really fun to watch at times. Always, always keeping an eye on the Raptors as well. I would also add in all those teams are good. Two other kind of groups. One, I found myself very intrigued this year by some of the really talented players that are in weird situations. So like John Wall, or especially earlier in the year before the Wizards figured it out, I was watching even more of them. They're, they've been a lot better recently. Pelicans with AD, they've been figuring it out when he's at center. But the other big one for me over the last two weeks has been the Sixers. The Sixers are this remarkable combination because there were these inklings earlier in the year that's like, hey, like th- they have some players that are, are better and just replacing horrendous non-NBA talent with NBA players is going to help. But I legitimately did not see any of this coming, and it could be an aberration. It probably is. But the last two weeks, they've been my favorite team to watch in the league. Yeah, and especially coming off last night's game, which was just, you know, it was it was great to watch in so many ways. Of, of course, the highlight is going to be Embiid's block on Kyle Lowry, native son of Philadelphia at the end of the day. But yeah, I definitely agree with you. I should have I should have put them on my list. They've kind of gone from the team that I used to watch for like 22 minutes a night when Embiid was playing to like, and I still probably only watch them when Embiid's playing, but I'll I'll go and watch the other 40, 48 too. I'm not, I'm not necessarily hitting skip or like changing to another game or anything like that. They've been a lot more fun to watch as as of late. I really, really, even from the start, like from the start of the season, I really, really enjoy watching Sarge play. He's a lot, he's a lot of fun. He's kind of, he's got like the perfect traits of like the European player in that he's like super, I mean, he's not, he's not super unconventional, but like there's like kind of a dissonance to his, to his game that I really like. It's like a little bit surprising sometimes, like the passes he's, he's going to fire off, stuff like that. I enjoy the rap uh, the this I enjoy the Raptors sometimes too, but I enjoy the Sixers <laughs> also because they have a lot of players that don't do the negative things that really frustrate me. This actually was what I was thinking about with the Raptors of like taking taking bad twos or you know getting getting bogged down. I mean they still have some weird crunch time stuff because they basically always will. This is a super young team that hasn't done much of that, but they've been better recently than they were earlier in the year. And so having players like Gerald Henderson, who is a competent pro, every once in a while he has a, a really cool highlight because he has that brings back that athleticism a little bit. But Sergio Rodriguez, other than being bad defensively, just produces good offense. McConnell's been good. Covington going from being the three part of three and D to the D part of three and D without ever being both is captivating <laughs> to me. And they have a lot of interesting guys, and I'm a huge Nerlens fan, have been since he was at Kentucky, really since high school, actually. And this isn't the best version of him. We're still working on our way. But every once in a while, he does something that just takes your breath away, because even though I watch, I've watched the league obsessively, have for years, he is physically capable of doing things that other people in this league cannot do. Right. And I, I know it's not going to be a good long-term solution, just because of the way that the league is going or maybe it would be a good zag although you know I don't know how much I really believe in that but I, I'm ready to see them on the floor together and beat and Noel a lot more like it just uh just you know throw it out there you're not going to make the playoffs these are two of your best prospects it could be just devastating defensively you're not going to space well MB does space the floor he's not really going to be able to post up down low that that much with Noel out there but you know I I definitely think we need to see it happen a lot more just to see potentially the defensive ability is devastating enough that it's somewhat tenable right 
the idea that the term that I've used before, I think I talked about this on a podcast with Sam Vecini a few months ago, is the idea of a stagger plus. So the idea of a stagger plus is that you want to keep the players separate as much as you can, but they're both so good that they're going to need to play together to get them to the right minutes total. And those guys will probably be pretty pretty good in that, at least better than Noel and Okafor were or Embiid and Okafor were because their games just didn't mesh. Right, and I think it's been a debate pretty much throughout the season, but I think it's kind of becoming clear that Okafor is going to end up being uh, the man out in that situation. What do you think? He definitely makes the most sense as the odd man out. It, the circumstances dictated a little bit differently just because we don't know what's going to happen with Noel. He's a restricted free agent. He could get paid a lot of money. But at the same time, I think what the Sixers should probably do is listen to offers on both of them and be willing to trade. You have to trade at least one of them just because there's no point in keeping all three. But I would also be open to, depending on what the offers are for Nerlens, to trading both and just re- realizing that you have Embiid, you have your franchise center. Yes, there is the risk of injury, but you can use those other assets to procure another good team around them and use one of your draft pieces to get a backup who can eventually be maybe a better version or a, a version of like what you wanted from Okafor but haven't yet gotten. Right, right. Like that, like I, I, I definitely like that idea. And I think like it does another thing, like when we talk about the Sixers that you got to as well, is uh, you can't really think about anybody except for Embiid is more than expendable. Like a lot of these guys can be, can be packaged into something else for sure. The one place I really worry about is, though, is because we haven't really seen too much out of the new Sixers management yet, but they really just, they need to get over the fact that, no, and I'm, I'm glad they're playing him again, finally, but they got to get over the fact that he was upset. That's the collateral damage of doing what you did. Somebody good is going to be upset over it. Right. Like, that's just, you shouldn't have been so openly tanking if you didn't want to have one of the most competitive people in the world be upset at you that was like that was gonna happen you have to deal with the ramifications of that especially now that it's a new it's a new uh organization too it just doesn't really when i when i think about restricted free agency and and even even now how they're not really like testing them out together like i kind of feel like that's still some leftover resentment from that it very well could be and the benefit of waiting with him is that there is always the possibility that he gets a little bit undervalued just because the other player, like, th- there is a risk to waiting on your money with Nerlens if you expect that the Sixers might match if they're, if they're intimidated because there's no benefit gain there. So if he has to wait out the market a little bit, this is much narrower than last year in terms of number of teams, but the arguably the more important part here is that it's narrower in terms of how many teams have enough space to make a player like Nerlens an offer. So there could be one or two that are more in that kind of YOLO spot where, hey, we have this money, we struck out on our best guys, so why not? But there is a distinct possibility. I haven't run the numbers yet because I'm waiting for the, fi- to, for the new CBA to put in all the new stuff into my Excel. But off the top of my head and from the other research I've done, there's a very real chance that Universe could be one or two teams, and who knows, maybe they're not the biggest fan of Nerlens, and then the Sixers can get him back at a reasonable price. Yeah, yeah, that's a good point. I mean... If anything, like all they've all they've done this season is uh, drive down his value anyway, right? So like, yeah, that's true. <laughs> I've been asking people this for a couple weeks now. Asked our mutual friend Ben Golliver last week: Is there anywhere with like Nerlens or let's say any of the other potential trade targets 
that any any fit that you think is great like oh i would love to see x player on x team it's more than anything there's Millsap in toronto that's like the homer pick of course but for noel i'd say probably portland which i'm assuming since it was ben you guys probably dove pretty deep into that of course <laughs> but yeah i i would just like to see a few there there's some players that are just in in tougher situations and i would love to see them somewhere else ben ben macklemore is a great example of this so Macklemore is on the Kings. They're not really doing much with him. He is another example of a player who will be could be really hurt by the restricted free agency process, assuming the Kings make a make a qualifying offer on him, which I expect that they will. And I would love to see him somewhere else, really anywhere else, to be honest. <laughs> right. And also, what the, an under an underlying part of this, but the problem is they don't have matching salary, especially if he comes if Middleton comes back. If the Blazers can somehow pull using their first round pick plus something else that isn't one of their best players into getting a better option at center than the ones they have right now, I would be over the moon happy. Right. Just as an aside, uh, when I read that Middleton might be back before before the playoffs start, I might have uh, thrown a five on them winning the Eastern Conference Finals. And for anybody in a country where betting on sports is, is legal or a state, I'm not really sure how it works in the States, uh, the odds are 46. So, you know, you might want might to get, get in on that before they change. That would be a very satisfying bet to win. I mean, the Cavs are great, not saying anything. Yeah, no, it's a good future. I mean, it's not, the odds are 46. There's a reason yeah. they're at that. But, Absolutely. you know, I think if with Middleton back, that kind of gives them a puncher's chance, especially if something happens. Because then I think I think with Middleton back and with Giannis' growth, like they have, they have a shot at kind of being the second best team in the East and also a matchup nightmare that won't have been scouted that well up until that point either. At this point, really, all I want is for I would love for Cleveland to get two tough series, but if it's one and it's just that that conference finals against the Bucks or the Celtics, I think the Celtics could give them a, a decent series. I would just be so happy. Yeah, that'd be. I mean, Middleton does come back. I mean, they are. I, I would already peg them at probably winning a series, right? But yeah, if I he comes, too. if he comes back, they have they have an honest to god shot at the the Eastern Con- Conference Finals. I think it depends on you know how fast he acclimates and who knows how rusty he's going to be, but, I mean, they weren't even supposed to be here to cop LeBron James a little bit, who, you know, might, might be, they, he, they might be a problem for him coming up. When a player mm-hmm. of, high, of high caliber comes back, one of the other things you want to look at is the quality of the player he's replacing, and Tony Snell has not done a lot to move the needle. So not only, are you, mm-hmm. this, this was true with the Celtics this year, so the Celtics looked shaky at the beginning of the year, and not only did they get Al Horford and then Jay Crowder back at the same day, same day actually, they replaced worse guys in the rotation, and so all of a sudden Tyler Zeller went from playing a lot to barely playing at all, and that can be almost as huge in the right circumstance. Right, yeah, that's a that's a really good point. He's uh, I mean, he's he's not making anything happen for them there. So, I mean, just subtracting his minutes alone is going to be a huge help for them. All of a sudden, they go to an area where you get a majority, an outright majority of their minutes going to above average NBA starters. Yeah, yeah. Even with As, their center problems, even with their yeah. center problems, you still have that. And then you move Tony Snell into a role that actually makes sense with him. I don't know if they would want to go to a true second unit or how they would want to do that, but at least they would have so much more talent to work with. Yeah, I, th- I still think you know staggering would be the best, the best option for them. 
just like I wouldn't I would have never do do hockey subs on a team like that especially if, if you bring Middleton back you're gonna have two really really good creators that are gonna have to learn how to you know share a little bit as well so I mean that would pretty much be pretty much be ideal actually because it would just bolster their bench so much too yeah I'm also excited to see how they handle the dynamics with Matthew Delvadova signed a big contract there four-year contract as a free agent and has broadly been outplayed by Malcolm Brogdon whether that continues or not we actively don't know but that can be complicated I think Delhi's okay with it but I want to see how that works out and how much that helps them just having two players that can capably fill that role well, you know Delhi, he can just fit into any situation. He doesn't really care about having the credit or anything. He's just going to go out there and play, you know. He's a grinder. Well, and anyway. they're, and they're winning. <laughs> you know, like it's a yeah. lot it's a lot easier to do that and to to take that demoted role when your team is is doing incredibly well whereas like what happened in Orlando where in Orlando they demoted Alfred Payton and Vooch though they ended up playing plenty of minutes you know it was a very different circumstance but when your team is out of the not out of the playoff picture but on the very very fringes of the playoff picture it's a lot different than when you're outperforming expectations and being awesome right well I was actually just trying to make a joke about grit and you yeah know, how Dell is the best teammate but you do make good points, especially, you know, for a player like Della Vadova, he like he doesn't have a leg to stand on if he wants to start complaining about his playing time. He's obviously being outplayed uh, and by a player who is far more closer to the timeline that, that the Bucks want to be on, too. So, you know, even if he was somebody that was inclined to complain and like I joked earlier, but he doesn't seem like he is. He really like wh- where's he going to go? What's his argument? Right. And we know he's, he's a cha- and we know he's a champion, so he has a champion's heart and a champion's mentality. Yeah, yeah, he really brings that pedigree to the team. So um, I do think that especially the emergence of Brogdon kind of does, especially if Middleton does come back, it kind of maybe could have a too many cooks effect, and maybe just just as a as a precautionary idea too, it could be a good idea to start bringing Middleton off of the bench and just like in lower minutes when he's coming back. Of course, like you know he hasn't he hasn't played basketball in quite a long time, so like just could be a good idea anyway. And then moving on from there, I'm sure you know it would be a good idea to eventually get him in the starting lineup and maybe have Brogdon running the show in uh, in the second unit. But just it'd be it might be a good idea to see how that goes with him as a as a six man running things with uh with Delhi is more of like a a secondary playmaker and there's there's a ton of spacing on the second unit for them too. So it could it could be kind of fun to see how that goes and then just let Giannis run things uh, as a starter. A lot of different ways to make it work, and you're right that they probably will want to bring Middleton along slowly, also because it's a hamstring injury, and hamstring injuries are notoriously terrifying for re-injury, and especially with his horrifying one, which I still will not repeat the specifics of, but if you want to look into it, you can, but it was gross. And I'm excited to see the Bucks because whenever a team completely blows through expectations and then has a, a change that's involved, you get... A, a different sense of of their viability and what they're going to be long term. So I'm I'm really pumped about what they're going to be. And another team that is going through a change. I wouldn't say they've outperformed expectations, but I'm just really excited to watch them the rest of the year is the Utah Jazz because the Jazz have been good, but they haven't been full strength for very much of this year. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, you know, the Jazz really get me thinking about, especially given their health issues, and I think the Celtics kind of fall along the same lines. They've kind of gotten me thinking about the viability of these teams that, you know, run 
based on all the key cogs in the unit working, which is not necessarily the Jazz. I think Gobert and Hayward have definitely, like, they're definitely the best players on the team, and they they stand out from the pack. If you don't have if you don't have Gobert, I don't really know. Like, they have they have strong defensive talent, but I don't really know what happens to them defensively. He anchors the whole unit. I mean, he's fantastic defensively. He's he's grown on both ends, but you know, he's just. I mean, I think he's he's my defensive player of the year so far. Uh, Draymond has a, a puncher's chance, I guess, but he's just doing everything out there. Like it's just impossible to get into the paint when he's when he's playing, and it gives everybody else more uh, more freedom to go out and pressure too. So I think you know those two are definitely the standouts. But you know when you you keep losing guys to ticky tack injuries and stuff, I think like Hill is probably the best example of this because of how much better they are with him. Even though he's been he's been hobbled for part of the season with like more smaller stuff, but regardless, you know they have been missing somebody at any point. Like it got me thinking about the viability of contenders like this because at the end of the day, like it's kind of a give and take. The more players that you rely on, the higher the chance that an injury could set a season into not necessarily turmoil, especially not for the Jazz, but at least like keep them from reaching their ceiling, especially if they're trying to contend. But then on the other hand, you might have a team where the extreme example would be the Cavs if LeBron got hurt, right? But even seeing how that really hasn't happened doesn't like seem like it's going to happen because of LeBron's durability. But maybe, maybe another team that relies on on their stars a lot. Maybe like Curry even being a little bit hobbled in the finals last year had a huge impact on on the Warriors. But that's just that's just one of the things that the Jazz have gotten gotten me thinking about, like how especially with the way the injuries have uh, have gone up in the past few years too. Just uh, how how much can you really uh, rely on everybody being healthy at the right time? It's a great point and also gets to the idea, which I, I might talk about more than other people just because I, I really like it as a concept, which is defining success. Like there's a reason why teams with MVP caliber players win championships almost every single time. And it's because that becomes a defining point when you get to crunch time. And I mean, the Jazz last year famously missed the playoffs because they were just so horrendous without point guards in crunch time. George Hill presumably will help that quite a bit. And he has when he's actually been on the floor. But those compilations of almost stars broadly haven't done well on that stage, but they can get you basically all the way there they can get you to you know conference finals and everything like that and considering where utah has been and considering how hard it is to get an mvp caliber player if they can make the conference finals maybe not this year but next year i'd say like the raptors that's a great step that's a a nice place to be as a franchise oh yeah i wouldn't you know decry anything they've done i don't think there's anything wrong with the way they've built their team if anything you know they're they're showing that there's other ways to do it but you know it just kind of shows that you know every every different method of team building has its set setbacks and i think we're starting to see that now with more teams that are that are built with uh with lower end stars but you know at the end of, at, at the end of the day yeah they have to be happy with their season and only one team wins a championship and there are a plethora of reasons why why that's the case so you know it's not like there's anything wrong with what what the jazz are doing yeah that's that's a fair way of putting it Before we move on, I want to take a little bit of time to talk about Blue Apron, the fantastic food delivery service. For those of you who have listened to Real Jam Radio before, you know that I am a huge fan of Blue Apron, have been for a long time. And a good example of that is a meal that's coming up for me this coming week. I'm excited about it when you get to pick things ahead of time. They have hoisin chicken steam buns, and I've never made anything like that. I've eaten plenty like that, and so it's exciting to learn how to make something that I enjoyed eating and that you know the ingredients are going to be incredibly high quality. That's one of the staples of Blue Apron is that the ingredients are absolutely incredible. And 
you get to have it in perfect proportions. Everything's all seasoned and measured out and you get to put it together and gain the confidence to make it. You get to eat a great meal and none of the real, the downside, no, no issues with food waste. A lot of times if you're going to the grocery store and you want to buy some of the spices and everything else, you have to overbuy in order to make it work. Sometimes you, those things can sit on your shelf for a while. And with Blue Apron, it's all self-contained. It's all excellent. And you don't have to take my word for it. You can check it out. Go to blueapron.com slash real GM, just like the name of this podcast. And you get three meals for free, including free shipping on your first order. So you can try it out. I've been on Blue Apron for, I think it's close to a year now. Such a huge fan of, of what they do. And the seafood is great. Basically everything is great. And you can find meals that, that tickle your fancy, either from a cooking perspective, eating perspective, ideally both. And you can try it for yourself. Again, it's blueapron.com slash real GM, R-E-A-L-G-M. Now back to the show. What else are you, is there anything else that you're interested in seeing the rest, the rest, let's say like kind of before the trade deadline and then for the rest of the regular season? Hmm. Well, yeah, I think, I mean, we have, we've talked about the the Bucks enough for sure, but you know, they're one of the teams that I'm most excited to see what happens with them. I kind of want to see if Denver can start putting some things together too. Mm-hmm. They're starting. They're starting to get there. I love watching Jokic play. Moutier is definitely Moutier is a guy that I kind of earlier this season, especially with the emergence of uh, Jamal Murray, I started to give up on him, and now he's. Uh, I'm kind of starting to eat crow for it now too. Like right around the time that I was like, no, it's not going to happen for him anymore. But you know, it's it's really nice to see things starting to come together there a little bit more for them. And just with the with the way that the West is right now, like it, there's an opening to make the playoffs. I'd like to see if they could kind of slip into it. I would too. There are two teams in the NBA that could really upset the apple cart in a good way at the trade deadline. One of them is Atlanta because they have Paul Millsap and other guys theoretically like Tabo and really whoever else they wanted to move. They could go in a lot of different directions. And then the Nuggets because the Nuggets have Wilson Chandler, Danilo Gallinari, both of whom are great players but don't necessarily fit in with the timeline. And Denver having some success, especially if it, if if the Kings end up falling off due to Rudy Gay's injury, unfortunate injury, there might be a little bit of an opening there. So how those two teams approach the next month and how they approach the trade deadline will be important not only for them, but for the rest of the league, because they are the pathway for a team to reach a new level of relevance and, dan- and, and danger in the playoffs. Yeah, definitely. And I, I think right now, especially like with, with Gay's injury, it seems like it's going to be a three-way race. The Nuggets, Blazers, and Pelicans. Right now, the Nuggets have the the eighth seed, but you know they also all those teams have a pretty bad record, so they, they are going to have to you know keep, keep up with whatever they're doing. And it's just... The thing with the Nuggets that I think about a lot is because this kind of goes back to the start of the season, but because so much of what they could be is theoretical, like in a trade scenario, I kind of think like, what do they really need? Like, do they package Gallo and Wilson for like an upper tier swing man? Is that like what they're kind of going for? Like, I don't really, the only things that are set in stone, I think, are like you got Murray and Jokic for sure. And Moody seems like he's going to, he's going to come along and, and make good on some stuff. So it's it's hard to just it's hard to envision a future. It's kind of why I avoided the the trade deadline question with yeah, them. That's but why. If you have any yeah. ideas, they they can go in a lot of different directions, and it it always and I know that this is frustrating. It, it depends on the offers that you get. They could go right. with draft picks. They could go with 
young, more established players. I, the other guy that aligns with all this is Will Barton. Will Barton is a wonderful player on one of the league's best contracts, but he'll also be an unrestricted free agent after next year. So if a team wants to make you a, a ludicrous offer for him, especially if they see Jamal Murray as a two or they intend on keeping Gary Harris, which they certainly could, then, well, why not move him if you, for the right offer? So all of those things run together. Consolidation, if they could pull it off, would be fantastic. Mm-hmm. The problem there is... Teams generally don't do that. You know, that that's not the way, <laughs> that's not the way that trades often work, but they should certainly be trying to do it if they can pull it off. I for the life of me can't think of a young player who is is clearly good but might be in the wrong circumstance, who's maybe like buried. Like this is what Andrew Wiggins could have been if he'd stayed on the Cavs. You know, like a guy who's who's good but kind of unnecessary on his team. Those players don't really exist except if somebody feels that way about Jalen Brown. But broadly speaking, the Celtics are in a very different place, and I can't imagine them doing it. So I'm sure the Nuggets would love that if the opportunity was there, but I'm right. openly skeptical about it. Then again, you never know. Like I, I, I fall back a lot on the Serge Ibaka trade because parts of it came out of nowhere for me. The biggest thing that came out of nowhere was not the trade partner. It was the price that they paid. So you never know. If a team overvalues your asset, you have to take it. Yeah, that's true. That's what you know. I didn't mention I didn't mention uh, Gary Harris in in the core because I really like Gary Harris. I think he's a if anything like I think that they should keep him if they don't get like a good offer for him and then bring um, Jamal Murray off off the bench is like the spark plug guy. He's kind of like the classic six man type. But yeah, like I think maybe Wiggins Wiggins could still potentially be that guy. I don't think it's necessarily. Like, it's not like anything in Minnesota is set in stone, and I don't think it should be with the way that they're playing. I don't know what necessarily they would want back, but if I think the conversation there is kind of like who you keep out of Levine and, and Wiggins. And for the sake of entertaining this uh, this Nuggets thing, I would, let's say they decide on uh, on letting go of Wiggins, although I would part way with uh, with Levine faster than uh, than I would with Wiggins if I was them. I mean, is there anything the Nuggets could potentially give them? they would want Gallinari would be awesome there if you were willing to resign mm-hmm. that would be a, a piece also just to ha- like if will Barton would be a useful a useful piece for them just like as, a, as kind of a, a filler in that way but a, a younger guy who can improve and who they would have a chance yeah. to sign I do prefer Barton there just because I don't like putting more pressure on on the wolves uh <laughs> win now yeah. thing because I mean they're clearly crumbling under in the first place see all their guys Nurkic would be useful for the wolves Mm -hmm. just as a as a body you know he's not as useful there as for other places just because they just paid a bunch of money to to jang but at the same point if you're getting him in compensation for that not only could you keep him and use him as a rotation player but somebody else would be interested in him too yeah i mean he's he's definitely a good asset to have i'm not i also i also agree with that because i'm not super high on jang Especially the way that he, he he fits with Carl Towns, I don't really, I, I don't like that combination down though. For Gallo, pretty bad. Gallo on uh, the Wolves would be awesome. He's he's basically what they wanted Bielitsa to be, except a little bit less athletic. Right. Oh, so many fun fake trades. So many <laughs> fun fake trades. Yeah, and and I think the other part of of the teams that can change the can kind of change the conversation is whether a team like Minnesota just decides they don't want somebody they have and and makes another move. And, and this gets into an idea that I haven't talked about anywhere yet, but I've been thinking about, which is if Ricky Rubio really hit the market, some of the teams that I think would be the most logical to consider acquiring him 
are actually teams that have a point guard right now, but that point guard is not locked in. So, for example, not the best example, but I still want to use it. Let's say Indiana wasn't totally sure that Jeff Teague was going to come back or that they were going to be able to get him at a reasonable price. If the Wolves weren't asking for the moon for Ricky Rubio, they don't have a ton of assets, but they do have their own first round pick and they have some other young guys that are intriguing. Why not give him a call? Yeah, I guess it depends on what you get back for him there. I just, I don't know if I really like what he does to the spacing though. No, no, that's true. I mean... That's true, but I I think the long-term vision there, if you were to get Rubio, would be, first of all, you're probably going to stagger him with Paul George and let the two of them have the ball in their hands kind of a lot, and also eventually get more floor spacing from the four, but that's done an all right job, so they could use him, but eventually maybe turn one of your other resources in that direction. Yeah, yeah, certainly. As a long-term like yeah. Especially especially if you don't think uh, Teague's going to come back or right. be and the, reasonable. And, the, and you could argue the same logic with, again, you have this force spacing issue, with New Orleans, like if for whatever reason they thought Drew Holiday wasn't going to come back, I would be calling about Ricky Rubio too because they're not going to get somebody on the free agent market at that yeah. price who's that good. And so those are the teams, that, and that's also the exact reason why I probably wouldn't move Rubio right now. And it's the same thing I've said about Goran Dragic is that there will be teams, especially assuming Curry and Chris Paul return to their current cities, there are going to be teams that have cap space that have a desperate need for a point guard. So if any one of the guys that is already on a team goes somewhere else, that team all of a sudden becomes a huge buyer. Yeah, that's a really good point. I think it makes things especially interesting for the Pelicans too, because I mean, Drew is probably number one target for anybody who needs a who needs a point guard because he's the one guy that's more the, that's most susceptible to to leaving. I also think that the Pelicans need to do whatever they can to keep him. I'm somebody who's really really high on Drew. I think he's kind of just exactly the player you'd want if you wanna if you wanna contend for a championship. He's not necessarily like the number two, but he's like a really really solid player who can do pretty much everything. He's not there's nothing that he leaves off of the table. So and that's also another reason why he could leave. But yeah, if I'm the Pelicans, I'm just like I'm throwing everything I can into into keeping him. Drew also fits really well with a ball dominant player. So he, yeah. he fits so many places because you can you can make it work even though they don't have a ball dom well they do right now but I would love him signing with the Knicks and basically just kind of clearing out a lot of the other stuff and saying okay we need to figure out what we're going to do with at the 2 and the 3 long term cuz Melo you know Melo is going to be expiring after next year they can they could theoretically move Courtney Lee but a base of, of Drew and Porzingis, because Drew is younger, even though he has some weird injury history, that mm-hmm. you could totally make that work and then throw all of your other remaining resources at figuring out what you want to do with the other big man spot and then the perimeter. He, he is younger, but he does he has logged quite a few minutes, though, at the same yes. time. He's like, he's like an old young. He was the sure. youngest guy. Who, he was the youngest guy in the league when he came in, and he's basically played heavy minutes ever since. I think he had a little bit of time where he was on the bench in Philly, but not that much. And then he was a starter for them, you know, was was kind of in that all-star consideration. And then when he went to the Pelicans, he's as long as he's been healthy, he's been logging serious minutes. Yeah, for sure. Oh, I kind of I like the idea of Drew with maybe like a dual point guard lineup or just with another another guard who is also a creator. I think he's a guy that really needs to be his skill set needs to be taken more advantage of as far as lineup creativity because he's definitely strong enough and and good enough to be defending twos, I think for the most part. And uh, especially when you consider so many so many teams are playing dual point guard lineups in the first place. I know we haven't exactly seen that work in in Portland, but Portland also doesn't have any anything down low that 
is uh is as good as Anthony Davis or really anything down low at all. So they're just over reliant on it. But I think you know it would be it'd be a good idea. I think if the Pelicans kind of opened up the floor to considering like let's let's not just like try to come up with like a swingman right here, right? Like let, let let's assume that maybe Drew could be could be like the secondary playmaker too because he's a really good shooter. He has he has more scoring tendencies than than most point guards anyway. Like he's not really a natural point guard in the first place. Like, he tries to be. So he's not, like, a selfish player by any means either, but he might not even necessarily be, like, the ideal pick-and-roll partner for Davis. Right. I like him there, and I think that it's realistic to say that it's unlikely that the Pelicans will do better than him. But the real risk for New Orleans, and they can handle this through communications because that is something they can do, but they need to know what he wants because there are going to be a lot of different offers for him. Probably not being the starting point guard for a championship contender. I assume that's not going to be on the table. Maybe not even the starting point guard for a fringe contender like, let's say, the Celtics. Like, I don't think the Celtics are going to offer him a ton of money. They already have Isaiah. They already have so many other things. But that next year down, you're going to have very different things. Does he want to live in a, a specific type of city? Does he want to play with a certain type of teammates? And I'd actually like him on the Pacers. Yeah, I was actually going to... That was something I thought of when we were talking, is he would fit well with Paul George. That would be a nice circumstance. I've also thought mm-hmm. about... It would be devastating defensively, too. Oh, yeah, and, and Miles Turner. You'd have, yeah. you'd have oh. a really nice foundation. You could... The other, like. the other two spots... You could go in so many different directions. And what I would probably do if they were able to pull that off would be have a bunch of really different guys for that first year or first year or two and just Mm -hmm. see what works and then get more players that are like that. So if they can get CJ Miles to come back, which might be kind of hard considering how they've been jerking him around the rotation, if Thaddeus Young, you know, all those sorts of things, just see what see what works, see what doesn't work, trade the guys that don't work, keep the guys that do try to find more some more players and, and find a five man lineup. But they would be awesome. Yeah, I mean that's a that's a core you can you can do a lot of stuff around. Would you like just Drew, would you like Drew next to Jimmy in Chicago? Yeah, I mean you want to talk about devastating defensively right there. Yeah, and he he's, he spaces the floor out for them too, which is like the Bulls really really need that. They need a secondary creator too. I mean as much as Wade Wade's had a surprisingly good season for like what my expectations were, but yeah, like they have a needed point guard. MCW is uh, stepping in and trying to fill the gaps as best he can, which he's actually doing a pretty good job of a lot better than I thought he would. But yeah, I mean, that would be that would be a huge win- windfall for them, I think. So basically, we've decided Drew Holiday should just go everywhere at the same time. I'm yeah, that. like I just, I, I, that's like what we were talking about earlier, though. He fits everywhere. He's perfect. He'd fit, like, in, that's Orla- what I- he'd fit in Orlando, too, because they need anyone with a pulse. <laughs> Although I like the way Peyton's playing lately, though. Yeah. So. Peyton's doing well. I th- I think that he's earned the right to that you don't want to spend a ton of money on a starter unless the right guy comes av- around at point guard. Maybe you right. give him you give him another year to figure it out. But at the same point, you talk to a lot of guys. You know, Patty Mills if if he were uh, yeah. interested in coming. Mm-hmm. But maybe you don't. And Patty Mills isn't really necessarily who, a guy who would threaten uh, right. Peyton's development. Too yeah, much. you 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 work that, and then if if mm-hmm. he drastically outplays Peyton, the problem is that they spent so much money on DJ Augustine, and DJ Augustine is all right. That maybe mm-hmm. they, maybe they don't throw anything at point guard, but they can also wait another year if, if they have to. Yeah, I, I Peyton's one of those guys that is regrettably one of the uh one of the victims of the statistical revolution in my eyes because i i like the way that guys like him play ideally like the way that he's playing right now but when you when you can't really shoot you really really need to be 
good at everything else and he's he has improved as a finisher he's always theoretically had the passing ability and i think it's starting to come to fruition but it's just it's just so hard when you don't have the jumper though you really just need to fill in every other gap which he could do but it's just you know it's just a tough needle to thread he was just born 15 years too late <laughs> yeah pretty it, much. it happens it's, yeah. it's very unfortunate and he, he can still be a good player can still be a productive part of a good team but we're seeing this with rubio too that if you have that specific constraint, it is very hard to reach those high levels in terms of team offense. Granted, the Magic the magic aren't doing him any favors because a lot of the other elements of that team are not conducive. My big hope for Orlando, it's, it's a very basic one, but whatever they do, just end up with Aaron Gordon starting at power forward. I, I don't care what else yeah. happens, just do that. Yeah. A, very basic, a very basic goal. Just have have your have your best young player playing the position that he actually can play. Yeah, that would that would be a really really great story. Um, I also have to ask you because I think I, I don't remember. I think you were pretty high on him. How does how does it feel knowing that Mario Hazonia is just like not an NBA player? It's tough, but those things happen. You know, like with Hazonia, the so the idea with him that I always intrigued me with him, and I said this back when he was seventeen was he was effectively another try at J.R. Smith. So the idea was that J.R. Smith was so physically talented, could do a lot of different things, sometimes he got in his own way, that I my idea was that there there's a better J.R. Smith out there, and my hope was that Hazonia was going to be that guy. Mm-hmm. What and then J.R. Smith ended up being that guy. Yeah, and I've gained <laughs> a greater appreciation for not only what even the more disappointing iteration of J.R. Smith was, but also just how much worse it could have been because right. he has not been able to create his jump shot reliably. He's been not been able to capitalize on the opportunities created by other people. I am not totally willing to write him off. He is like Ben McElmore. He is a player that a change of scenery, like I, I'm not saying I would throw like a big contract at him, but if I could take a flyer on him, considering the other players Orlando has sold low on that were also good, if you could get him for a middling second round pick, just to see if maybe it was the circumstance that was screwing him. Like, we're seeing more from Stauskas now, and Stauskas was just completely screwed up in Sacramento. There's a possibility, but the overwhelming probability is that he just isn't good enough. Yeah, that's definitely a good point. It's uh, it's one of the, it's been one of the worst places for a young player to to develop as of late. I think we're seeing that with all the depot now too, especially considering how much we, how much potential there was in his rookie year. Well, and kind Harkless. of just got floundered. Yeah, like, look at what too, Harkless, yeah, Harkless is compared, is, yeah. compared to where he was. Not, not only <laughs> is it the fact that they got him for nothing, but the Blazers have put him in a good circumstance where he's not asked to do a lot offensively, but can can be himself defensively and he's turned into a really nice player yeah certainly that's a really that's a really good point i mean if he's he's definitely one of the guys like especially with when amino was out like he really helped keep him afloat as far as uh role playing and and just doing like little things goes because that also is just like a result of them having very very little of that but harkless has really developed into one of those like a lesser version of like leave nothing on the table type of guys for sure right and if they put an even better defensive center around that team Harkless could be even more valuable. They just don't have mm-hmm. that guy yet and probably yeah. never will because I can never have everything I want. <laughs> Aww. But maybe they get Nerlens and then that way it'll work out, but probably not. It's not necessarily likely, but... <laughs> Thanks so much for taking the time. Always a pleasure to talk with you. Yeah, thanks for having me on.
Thanks again to Sirat Sohi for taking the time to come on. You can read her Clay Thompson piece at Sports on Earth, and you can read her other work all over the place. She's very talented, written for Rolling Stone, for Vice, so many other places. And you can also follow her on Twitter at Damian Trillard, D-A-M-I-A-N-T-R-I-L-L-A-R-D. Really did enjoy talking with her and going through all of the nuances and things that are going on in the league. And I enjoy this time that's about a month before the trade deadline because we get to learn a lot more before things start happening. And so you can speculate, you can think about what you want to see, and a lot of different elements that are in place, seeing different teams get hot, get cold. Rudy Gay injury, of course, changes some dynamics, and the Nuggets doing well, and everything in the East. The East is so up in the air at the moment. So enjoying all of that. Hope you enjoyed the episode as well. Going to go in a lot of different directions as usual for Real Jam Radio, depending on guest availability and everything of that sort over the next few weeks, just really seeing how all of this works out. If you want to give any feedback, good, bad, and different, you can certainly do so at MBA at gmail.com or at DannyLaru on Twitter, D-A-N-N-Y-L-E-R-O-U-X. I read everything, respond to what I can, but I can't make any promises. Also, you can check out this show and so many other excellent podcasts on CLNS Radio. They have their own app. You can check it out and go through this podcast, numerous other stuff, and they're adding more every day. I'm very excited with some of the new additions that they've had, including my friend Sam Vecini having his, his excellent Game Theory podcast, which I go on when I can, and have a lot of other, of course, stuff going on. Locked on Warriors, Dunked on, the Twitter NBA show, which will return next week on Wednesday, I believe. And lots of great stuff going on, of course, working through a million different things at once, which is par for the course for me. If you want to support this show, there are a lot of different great ways you can do it. You can leave a rating, leave a review in whatever podcast player you use. You can also subscribe and download every episode. Those are major things that you can do to help. And also you can check out our sponsors, ZipRecruiter.com slash sportsfan if you want to post jobs for free audible.com slash try now for a free month subscription and an audiobook with that trial. And also our good friends at Blue Apron, blueapron.com slash real GM, and you can get three meals for free, including free shipping on your first order. All of those things not only give you great products for discounted rates or in the case of ZipRecruiter and Audible for free, but also it tells them that you came from us, which gives them further motivation to advertise with us in the future, help keep the lights on here. And also encourage future advertisers that because engagement rates and things of that nature can be really helpful, just like leaving a rating, leaving a review in terms of rankings for iTunes and everything else. So thank you so much for listening. Take care and make it a great day. Mm-hmm.